Well, this morning, like I said, I've been thinking about this for a while, and God's been putting it on my heart, but I want to talk to you guys this morning about the reality of the supernatural. Who in this room believes in the supernatural? Amen. The supernatural is a reality, particularly if you're a Christian. But things are a little bit different. I don't know if you notice, in this country, everybody only believes in science. But science is the real big thing here. You know, everyone's, you know, if it can't be explained by some test, by some scientific method, then it's not real, it's just fake. Which is really strange because there's so many things that they can't explain. But they want to they say, no, everything can be explained. Everything is, is, is according to some natural function. And I agree that everything can be explained, but it's always not a natural function. God is a supernatural God, amen? Something you see that's a little bit different when we minister overseas, like when we were ministering in Africa, you know, no one has problem with believing in healing in Africa or believing in supernatural provision in Af- Africa because they already, even the, the religions that they're coming from, they already believe in the supernatural. There's a lot of, of, of uh, supernatural belief and, and even uh, uh, some stuff that's just a little bit crazy over there. But, so it's very easy to redirect that towards God and His ability to work because that's what they're used to. They understand that. They don't have already from birth in their head somebody telling them that the supernatural is not real. And we see a lot of of greater supernatural moves of God over there. It seems to come easier to them over there. And that's a totally different attitude than in our countries. Because... You know, when I hear stories of the missionaries that are working over there, we, we, I get updates from some of the work that uh, Overland Missions is doing in South Africa, and we hear stories all the time of, of people that are just messed up, they have everything going on, and, and demons are cast out of them, and they're perfectly normal after that. And I'm not just talking like they're having a bad day, I'm talking like they're, they're completely deranged, and they have, some of them they actually have to, I've heard stories of, of men that they've had to keep chained up to trees so they would not make sure that they're not hurting people, and the, the missionaries would come in and they'll begin to pray for them and they, they, these demons get cast out and they're perfectly normal people again. You don't hear about that kind of stuff too much in the States because we're so averse to the working of the supernatural. We hear about more stories of healing. Even in other parts of the world we hear stories of, of the dead actually being raised. And most of us, when I just said that, went, yeah, that's not true. Instantly the skepticism inside of us begins to well up. And I'll be honest with you, it's not just you guys. That happens to me as well. Healing is probably one of the greatest uh, areas that I, for areas of growth for faith in my life. I mean, people talk about having faith for finances and they have a hard time tithing and giving. That's not a problem for me. I've been giving to God. He's taken care of me for years. Faith for finances and provision, not a problem for me. But healing is still an area that I struggle in, which is why I think God has had me spend so much time preaching on it. So the question that I was kind of placed on my heart is, what is the end result of this skepticism, particularly even in the church in the United States? And I think what happens is Christians, particularly in America, we don't even bother asking for stuff sometimes. We don't even bother praying and asking God for things because we've already decided in our head that it's impossible. Who in this room has the guts to begin praying over somebody and asking God to raise them from the dead? I've got to admit, that's a, that's a leap of faith. That is a, you know, God help me have that kind of faith. But we see in Scripture that people were raised from the dead. We have, we have uh, legitimate stories of people being raised from the dead, uh, uh, of stories of missionaries working. And, and 
yet still we have a hard time putting our faith in that kind of stuff. And a lot of times when we do ask, we don't even really believe what we're asking. It's more like lip service. It's the, this is the Christian thing to do. So, you know, we, we pray for healing because we're supposed to pray for healing, but we don't really expect God to do anything. We ask God for provision on our lives, but then we don't really live like He's part of our life. We treat Him like, sometimes like He's a vending machine. We don't want to spend any time with Him. We don't want to talk to Him. We don't want to spend time worshiping. We want to do anything with Him until something goes wrong. And then it's, you know, we think put a couple of quarters in and God's going to pop out a miracle. Or how many times have we asked for healing, but, but if it doesn't happen right away, or as soon as, we, you know, as soon as we're praying and as soon as we open our eyes, if it hasn't miraculously been healed, we begin to make excuses for God. Anybody ever made an excuse for God why something didn't happen? That's really just a lack of faith. Our job is not to make excuses for God. Our God is to do what He says to do in the Bible, to lay hands on the sick and know they will recover, to trust Him. And trust me, I'm right there with you so many times. I hear stories of stuff and instantly the, the skepticism begins to well up inside of us. And unfortunately, there, there is a lot of, of people that have abused this kind of stuff and taken advantage of people. But just because there are people that have done dumb things and taken advantage of people doesn't mean that God doesn't work supernaturally. And I believe that if we want to see God begin to move more supernaturally in our churches here in the United States, we have to be open for Him to move supernaturally. We've got to stop telling ourselves and other people what God can and can't do and just let Him work, let Him move. Now this morning as I've been talking to you, if you think that the supernatural working of God might be a little far-fetched, Today we're going to take a look at some examples, and particularly we're going to spend our time in the book of Luke this morning. And the reason we're going to do that is, is, is one, because I think Luke is, a, as across the, the world even now, considered to be one of the most accurate ancient historians. Between secular and non-secular uh, historians alike, they, they believe that, that he knows this stuff because they found archaeological evidence that shows that he actually got some stuff right, even stuff they thought he had wrong in the first place. And as we'll begin to dig into, you'll see why he wrote it. But the truth is, we look at the book of Luke, and we're going to see so many examples of God demonstrating uh, his ability to work in the supernatural and, and actually probably his affinity to work in the supernatural. God actually isn't a big fan of doing things naturally because he doesn't want us to think that it's us that did it. it there's no doubt when God moves that it's God because it couldn't have happened any other way. So let's take a look at the, the first few verses in the book of Luke. It says, in Luke 1, 1 through 4, it says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So like I said, the reason that I wanted to look primarily in the book of Luke today is because of who Luke was and why he wrote this gospel. And the first thing, who he was. One, we know that Luke was a calling, a friend and colleague of Paul. So particularly in the, the book of Acts, he was eyewitnesses to most of what Paul did. He was, he was traveling with him, and when he did, he had, he had first-hand accounts from Paul what was going on. Now as far as the the 
the book of Luke and the, the, the gospel where Jesus lived, he was not a first-hand account. He was writing this gospel as a historian. And it says right here, it says that it seems good to me also, having followed things closely for some time past, he was, he was like any good historian. He was checking his sources. He was checking the facts out. He was hearing stories, but he was following up on them and making sure that these accounts were correct. And the truth is, is these accounts that he was receiving were eyewitness accounts. When you have an eyewitness account, that lends some credibility to what's being, uh, being said and heard and done because they were there. You know, when, when you went through something, when you've done something, and somebody goes, well, how do you know that? Well, I was there. I saw it. That lends credibility to what you're speaking. So he's following up on these firsthand accounts as a historian. And also we know that Luke was very accurate in his writing. Based on his, this is a, a, a quote from uh, <clears throat> William Ramsey, and this is based on his accurate description of cities, towns, um, islands, as well as concerning like official titles of people that lived back then and archaeological evidence. It says, William Ramsey wrote that Luke is a historian of the first rank, and uh, Sir William Ramsey, he was an archaeologist. And it says, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. You see, when we read the book of Luke, we can Luke, we can look at this book and understand that this is a accurate historical account of what happened. And everything that we can fact check to this day, which is all the archaeological stuff, particularly the towns and cities he talks about, the, uh, the big thing for the longest time is he talked about a census in the book of Luke that nobody could confirm happened. So they began to say, oh no, this guy's just making stuff up. This never happened. And lo and behold, after some time, we were able to dig up evidence of that particular census. The, it was like one of the last things that people were trying to say Luke is, uh, is not worth reading was found to be true. He was accurate. So we can trust his writing as an accurate model of what happened. And the next thing that, that I want to know is, is why, what is the reason that Luke wrote this book? And he's writing to most excellent Theophilus. Now, Theophilus, we don't really know who he is. We don't know exactly who this guy is. But we can tell by the way that he, he, he speaks to him, saying most excellent Theophilus. One, Theophilus was a common Jewish name, so he's probably a Jew. But the most excellent title refers to probably he was a man in, in high position, high standing in the, in the Roman um, ecosystem. He was probably a, a Roman official. So he, he's kind of up there, but he just, he just got saved. Judging by what he's saying to him is he just recently got saved and, and, and Luke is saying, you know what, I've, I've examined the evidence and I want to give you an account that's accurate so that you can have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. How do you know it's good to have certainty over the things that you've been taught? So this is why I want to take a look at the book of Luke because I think that when particularly this book, not Truthfully, I believe every book in the Bible was inspired by God, and we can trust it wholeheartedly. But particularly in Luke's case, he's known even outside of the, of the uh, secular, non-secular stuff. In, secular, in the secular world, he's trusted. So let's go ahead and take a look at some of the things that he has to say. Luke 1, 8-13 says, Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. 
And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now this is pretty, a pretty interesting story. Zechariah was an old priest and he had no children. If you look in verses 6-7 through seven, right before this, it says that, uh, that him and his wife were righteous before God. They walked blamelessly in the commandments of the statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Basically, they were, they were a couple of old folks that couldn't have babies. And he's lived his life like that. And this is interesting at this point to me because... Uh, it was commonly thought that if you were barren, it was basically some sort of punishment for your sin. The reason why you couldn't have children was because you were living a sinful life in some way. But we know that's not true because, like I said, in verse uh, 6 and 7, it said that he, he, they walked blamelessly. So it wasn't a sin thing. But at any rate, now he's, he gets chosen by Lot to go and enter the temple, and he begins burning the incense. I imagine he's praying at this time, and, and lo and behold, an angel shows up. Now, I want you to think, just a couple verses ago, we just saw Luke saying that I want to write accurately for you so that you can know with certainty of what you've believed. And only a few verses later, the first thing he begins to mention is angels. How many of the angels are supernatural beings? Angels show up. But we're going to hold on that for a second. Let's go ahead and continue to look at the story because I think this is an amazing story. He's sitting there, he's praying, and the angel shows up and says, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, at first glance, I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, man, he's in there, he's praying, and he's praying, God, please let me have a son. Because that's what it looks like. The angel shows up and says, hey, your prayer's been answered. But then as I begin to do a little more research on it and, and read some commentaries on it and look about what's actually going on and really just think about it, you know what? He probably wasn't praying to have a child. First off, he's lived a very long portion of his life at this point, not having a child. I think at this point, he's probably resolved himself to say that I'm not going to have kids. So what did his birth of his son actually begin to kick off? What was the prayer that he was praying? You know, when they went into the temple and they're like outside, everybody's praying. He's on the inside, lighting the insides, praying. He's praying for his people. He's praying for forgiveness. He's praying for deliverance. He's praying for victory for his people. And then an angel shows up and says, your prayer has been heard. And now we're looking at John the Baptist. John the Baptist is about to be born. His prayer was heard because John the Baptist is the one that, that makes way for the Lord, that calls out. He's the one, he was basically the one that says, hey, here he's coming. It was the first part of Jesus coming back. He was praying for his people. And now John is beginning to declare the coming of the Lord who is going to give those very things for his people. And that's why his prayer was answered. He wasn't praying a selfish prayer. He was praying for his people. But what we have is, in this story, angels are showing up right after he just said, I'm going to be accurate, I'm going to tell you how it is. Angels show up. And what's interesting to me is, if you read the book of Luke, and you do a quick search in any Bible program you have, that the word angel, the angels are mentioned 14 times in the book of Luke. If you just look at the New Testament, the word angel is mentioned 101 times in the New Testament. 
And we know that angels, they're, they're, they're spiritual, heavenly, supernatural beings. Now, for most of us, if we think we're going to write an accurate historical account, the last thing we're going to write is angels because people are going to think we're crazy. But the truth is that Luke was just telling it how it was. And from the very beginning, we start to begin to see supernatural things. Angels are rear. Angels are among us. They're, they're, I still believe that they are acting as messengers for God today. But we have to, be, to recognize that God will move in supernatural ways if we want any of this stuff to manifest in our lives and to be real. As the story goes on in, in Luke 1, 18-20, it says, And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you do not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Anybody ever wondered about this? Zachariah is made mute. Why would God do that? Seems like such a strange thing. You want to know why God made him mute? Because the first thing he says is, how, am I, how shall I know this? Basically, he begins to get a little bit accusatory with the angel. He's basically saying, prove it. You know, why don't you show me, maybe, maybe prove it. How shall I know this? Because, you know what, if you look at my life in the natural, I'm old, my wife's old, she's barren, we can't have kids. How is this going to be? And he says, you know what, I've been in the presence of God. I was sent to tell you this. And then he strikes him. He says, you're not going to be able to speak until that day. You know what? God wasn't punishing him. My first thought when I read this is, is God punishing him? But that doesn't actually, it's not accurate if you look at who God is and you read about who he is and what he does. God doesn't punish us because our punishment was taken up in his son. Amen? And he's not out to hurt us and he's not out to make our lives miserable. So what's going on here? The truth is, is that God was helping him. It's kind of like when somebody prays to win the lottery over and over, but they never win, and you're like, man, is God, is God just not wanting to bless them? But it's because if they were to win the lottery, they'd end up spending on all kinds of stupid stuff and get themselves into all kinds of trouble. Maybe they'd go a little crazy with the drinking and the drugs and the women and all those things. So instead of them being tempted with that kind of stuff, God doesn't answer that prayer. That's what's basically happening here. He makes them mute because if he doesn't, he's going to talk himself out of that blessing. You've got to be careful with the things that you say. And he was already trying real hard to talk himself out of that blessing. No, nah, this can't be. This will never happen. There's no, you know what? Prove it. There's no way this could happen. He's like, you know what? It is going to happen, and you just need to be quiet and let it happen. You know what? Sometimes that's my advice for us. When God makes a promise in your life, instead of making excuses for why it can't happen, won't happen, shouldn't happen, just shut your mouth and trust God. Amen? We need to be very careful of the things that we say. And that's why, if I've, if I've ever heard you guys say something like, my cold, or my diabetes, or my sickness, my, my, any of those kind of things. When I hear people say stuff like that, I, hey, don't say that. Don't claim that stuff for your life. It's not yours. Instead, declare your wholeness. So you know what? I'm whole in the name of Jesus. I am healed. But Pastor Wayne, I'm, you know, I just went to the doctor. They definitely said I'm not healed. 
Well, begin to speak the truth of the Word of God instead of what the world's trying to tell you. And it's not yours. God didn't give it to you. Begin to speak the truth. Now, is God going to strike you mute in this day and age? Probably not. I want to know that, that while your struggles are important to God, God wants you healthy and whole. This right here is about to begin the, the series of events that have to happen for Jesus to come back. That's a little bit of an important event. God's not going to let that one be messed up. He's not going to let Zechariah talk himself out of having John. But I tell you what, the end result will be the same if we don't begin to declare and proclaim our promises instead of talking ourselves out of blessing. Amen? Next, I want to look at the greatest event in the history of the world. Luke 1, 26-38. Sorry it's so small, but there's a lot of stuff I had to fit on there. It says, In the sixth month of the angel of Gabriel was sent from God uh, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will a child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is an amazing story. This is a supernatural story. This was one of the greatest event in the history of the world, and it was the choice of a woman who was no different than you or I. You know, she could have acted in disbelief. She could have argued. She could have pushed it away. But instead, she said, here I am, Lord. And imagine explaining this to your husband. You know, today's views on premarital sex are a little bit different than they were back then. And she's going she's gonna to end up being pregnant trying to explain that to her husband. The townspeople are going to know that they're not married and they're going to see all this stuff going on. Man, she's taken an incredible step of faith to say, let it be done to me according to your word. I don't know, this is the, the definition of a supernatural event if you ask me. First, we see angels again. Second, she's about to become pregnant as a virgin. Now, all of us know that doesn't just happen. That's, that's a physical impossibility. That is a supernatural event. You know, there was no in vitro fertilization back then. If you got pregnant, everybody knew how you did it. But since she was still a virgin, this was God. This was a supernatural event. The Scripture says that the, the Holy Spirit will come upon her and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And that she would become pregnant. You know, God 
is willing to, and, and like I said, I believe he has an affinity to move in the supernatural. God wants to work supernaturally in your life. And this is kind of a similar situation that old Zachariah just went through, except for the main difference is her response. One, she does have that moment of disbelief. She does have that moment of questioning what's going on, but you'll notice in the way it's written, it's, it's not quite as accusatory. It's more of inquisitory. She's like, wait a minute, how, how is this going to work? I'm still a virgin. But you know the difference between her and old Zach? Is this line right here. She quickly changes that disbelief and says, you know what? I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it, me, let it be to me according to your word. Let it be done to me according to your word. Even if she said, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense to me. I know how pregnancy works. You know what? You said it's so, God, so let's, let's let it be so. I trust you, and I'm going to let you work in my life. This is how we should always respond to God when He begins to speak in our lives. When we hear that we're to be victorious, or we're to be healed, or that we're going to have provision, we should never say, that's impossible, but rather let it be done according to your word. And God will open the windows of heaven to have those things happen in your life. And He's not limited by the natural in this world. He's not limited by our, what we see as, as physical limitations. God can move in your life supernaturally. What about this one? Luke 4, 1-4. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And He ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, He was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. I mean, there's a devil. And the devil is real. And here's, once again, Luke, our, our accurate historian, is telling a story of how the devil physically walked the earth and was talking to Jesus, was tempting Jesus. And the truth is, this world is the domain of the devil. In 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 it says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. He's referred to as the God of this world. If you read through these, through these, these temptations, the devil says, All authority has been given to me on this earth. He is the one that's ruling and reigning in this world right now. But the truth is, this story should be give us hope. Because the first thing that we think of when, oh man, the devil's ruling and reigning and has all authority on this earth, is like, what are we supposed to do? Well, this story right here should give you hope. One, it means that Jesus can relate to us. Jesus went through the same things that we go through. He was tempted just like we were tempted. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He's been through what we've been through. He understands. He gets it. Two, it means that temptation is not sin. Has anybody ever been tempted by something and you begin to feel a little bit bad about yourself? You begin to feel a little bit like something's wrong? I want you to know that if you've been tempted, you have not sinned. The problem with temptation is that when we let it evolve into something more than just temptation. But Jesus lived without sin and Jesus was tempted in every way that we are tempted. Therefore, temptation can't be sin. It's what we do with it. You know, the Scripture says that when thoughts pop in your head, you should take every thought captive. When you have temptation pop in your head, deal with it. Stand against it. Except for the case of sexual sin. Sexual sin is the only one that's different. You know what the Bible says to do when you're tempted by sexual sin? 
Run away. Flee. Get the heck out of there. Get away from it. Get away from the temptation. You haven't sinned by being tempted. You only will sin if you give in to that temptation. Amen? And third, this means that we can be victorious in all of these situations. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Jesus Christ lives in you. His life is inside of you. His power, His authority is inside of you. And if He could resist temptation, that means that in His power, so can you. Amen? This is another uh, uh, instance of the supernatural happening when the devil shows up in the book of Luke. Moving forward a little bit more, in Luke 4, 31-36, it says, And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teachings, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent! And come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him and, gave, and having done him no harm. And they were all amazed, said to one another, What is this word? But with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits. And they come out. Now we have another supernatural event. We have people that are possessed by demons. Do you guys believe in demons? Because the Bible says they're real. Now the good news is, is we have authority over them. They have no ability or power in our lives as long as we don't give it to them. We can stand against them. Much like Jesus, we can rebuke them. But remember, this man that's writing this, Luke, he's, in, he's a historian. He's wanting to write an accurate account. Now we've already dealt with, with, with uh, angels, demons, the devil, uh, supernatural uh, uh, people giving, uh, giving birth a supernatural impregnation. And also we have his wife who was barren and old being healed enough for them to have children. So much supernatural stuff in such a short time. And once again, we have another one here. And the things that stand out to me here is one is this demon knows who Jesus is. You know, I look at these stories and I'm like, man, he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And this tells me a couple things. One, Knowing who Jesus is, is not enough to be saved. You can know who Jesus is, you can know about Him, you can know that He lived. And in James 2.19 it actually says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So believing that there is a God, believing that there is a Jesus, knowing that He lived is not enough. We must believe that He is our Lord and Savior, that He is the Son of God, that He gave His life for ours, and that He rose again from the dead, giving us life. And the next is that we have the same authority that Jesus had. Like I said, the truth is demons exist. But we shouldn't be afraid because we have the same authority to do what he did because he has delegated us that authority. In John fourteen twelve, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. Isn't that good news? You know, there's some bad supernatural stuff going on, but we have supernatural power to deal with it, given to us, delegated authority by Jesus Christ to deal with this stuff. <clears throat> we also see healings in the book of Luke, supernatural healings. Luke 4, 38-40 says, And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. 
And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. And now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them, and he healed them. You know, supernatural healing was commonplace at this time, particularly in this time. And the truth is that it was easier for them to accept healing than it was to accept the forgiving of sins, which is so weird to me today because not very many people have a problem with putting their faith in Jesus to get saved, but they have a whole lot of problem putting their faith in Jesus to even have a headache healed, let alone a major thing like cancer or paralysis. But you guys remember the story of the, of the, 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 the paralytic that was, had the roof torn off the building and they dropped him down in there? And, and Jesus said, Son, your sins are forgiven. And everyone just went up in arms. Who does he think he is forgiving sins? They had a really hard time believing that someone could forgive sins. But he's like, you know what? Just so you know that, that I have the authority to forgive sins on this earth, which is easier, to say his sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? And he tells the man get up and walk and he's supernaturally healed. And I find it interesting that that wasn't a big deal. Oh, you healed him, that's cool, but forgiving of sins was the problem. But being healed was, a, was commonplace. Being supernaturally healed was commonplace in the early church. And when Jesus was walking the earth, why don't we see it as much today? It's because we're so closed-minded at the supernatural working in our lives. And this isn't a one-off thing. I mean, just in this couple of verses, we find that they brought any who were sick with very diseases, he laid his hands on them, and he healed them all. This wasn't a one-off thing. This supernatural healing was just, it was just part of life back then. And the truth is, is God is still able to supernaturally heal today. If we would just place our faith in Him and stop doubting His ability to work. I've seen it myself, and I've heard first-hand accounts. I've, I've known someone who had leukemia cured, that had hepatitis C cured, that had pancreatic cancer cured. I've known of people that have drank acid and had no long-term effects. And I've seen personally when I laid hands on someone, a, a cut within one day being knitted together that had been open to the bone for, for a week. You see, that's the rub though. It's the without doubting part that gets us. And like I said earlier, it's one of the greatest areas that I struggle in as well, particularly healing. And it's strange because I've seen it so much, you think that would make it easier. But I just have to continue to trust God because unfortunately, particularly for us in America, it's so ingrained in us that that stuff can't happen. We have to overcome a lifetime of teaching saying otherwise. What about some supernatural climate change? Luke 8, 22-25, it says, One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windsword came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. You know what, first off, this isn't a little storm. The people that are on the boat with Jesus, their disciples, many of them were fishermen. They've been out on the, on the seas their whole life. They know the difference between a small little squall and a storm that's endangering their life. And when it says that, hey, they were in danger and the boat's filling with water, this is a pretty big storm. But then they 
awaken Jesus, and he gets up, he speaks to the storm, he rebukes it, and it subsides. You know what? That's not scientific. That's not natural. We don't have any device that can just stop a storm, particularly when you just speak to it. This was a supernatural event. But God isn't limited to the natural. And He will work powerfully through us, just like He worked through Jesus and the disciples in the book of Acts. Matter of fact, Jesus rebukes His disciples for being limited by the natural. He says, where's your faith? Why didn't you speak to the storm? I didn't even know we could do that, Jesus. I'm telling you now, you can do that. You can't use that excuse on me. So what about, does this still happen today? Does this kind of stuff actually happen today? I, I know of three instances where I've heard stories of, of supernatural weather changing. First off is, uh, and I, I, I cannot remember for the life of me who this preacher was, but he's got a big tent revival meeting, and he's got thousands of people coming, and a storm begins to come in, and it's threatening to cancel the event. So he walks outside and he says, Devil, if that storm comes through here, I'm coming back, I'm coming back when it's done with a bigger tent, and I'm going to reach even more people. And lo and behold, the, the storm goes away. He has his meeting. And when it's all said and done, he, he walks back out afterwards and he says, Devil, that was an agreement. I'm still coming back with a bigger tent and getting more people saved. There was also a pastor who came in and preached at the, the Tucson church once. And once again, I can't remember for the life of me who it was. But there was a huge hurricane coming in and it was headed directly towards the city that they were in. And they began to pray and rebuke the storm. And he said that you can, to this day, look at the storm pattern, the hurricanes on one trajectory, and then it curves right at the coast and and goes away from their city. They began to pray and rebuke the storm and change happened. God moved to that day. And then the one I can remember is Pastor Jane told me a story once that she was driving, I don't remember where, but she was driving in this incredibly terrible storm. You know one of those storms where you can't see more than a few feet in front of her car? And she was scared, it was a terrible storm, and she said that God began to tell her, speak to the storm, rebuke the storm. So she rebuked the storm. She says, I don't know what it looked, she says, I don't know what it looked like on satellite, for all I know, if they were looking at the satellite, there was just a bubble around this car traveling down the road where there was no storm, because when she rebuked the storm, it stopped raining and she could see far enough that she could drive safely. The supernatural still happens today if we'll trust God. What about supernatural provision? Luke 19, 12-17, it says, Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go in the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. And he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, But we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we were to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men, and he said to the disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about fifty each. And they did so, And he had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. That's an amazing story. This story we see provision. And it wasn't just enough. God didn't just provide enough. But he provided an abundance. They started with five loaves and two fish, and they ended up with 12 basketfuls. Even if the baskets were only this big, that's a lot of leftover compared to what they started with. That's supernatural provision. God isn't limited by the natural when He's going to provide for you. 
So are we open to the possibility that God can do this type of supernatural miracle in our lives? Can He do it today? What about operating in the gifts of the Spirit? The word of knowledge we're going to look at here, Luke 19, 28-32, and it says, When He had said these things, He went ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when He drew near to the Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, He sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. And untie it, bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, This, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. Jesus was operating supernaturally in one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the same power that's offered to us in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He knew that there was going to be a cult. God had told him that there was going to be a cult. He knew that it would never have been uh, uh, ridden. And he knew exactly what to say to the owners. He had been given supernatural knowledge. There was nothing natural about that. But instead, it's God moving supernaturally. And the truth is that we're able to move in the gifts of the Spirit today. Problem is, even in the the global church, there's so many people who don't believe that that power is made available. They don't believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Which blows me away because when I read the Scriptures, it's pretty clear that that power is available to us. The problem is we all think it's weird. We all think that speaking in tongues or people getting healed, oh, that's all weird and creepy. So we begin to push it away instead of letting God move supernaturally in our lives. What about people being risen from the dead? This seems like an odd thing to put in an accurate historical account. Who's going to believe this? Luke 24, 1-9 says, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb... And taking the spices they had prepared, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Obviously, we're speaking of Jesus here rising from the dead. And it says, But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Jesus rose from the dead. Our faith, our salvation, it all rests on the premise that Jesus supernaturally rose from the dead. Now, I want you to sink in for a second. If you have any, any aversion to the supernatural, I want you to know that our entire faith is based on it. In 1 Corinthians 15, 16-18, it says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, and those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Our entire belief system, our faith, is based on a supernatural, multiple supernatural events. And the truth is, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is living inside of you. Romans 8.11 says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. That same Spirit, that same supernatural Spirit and power is living inside of you today. 
We're crazy to think that God won't move supernaturally anymore. We're crazy to think that, that was some other time because the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, the greatest supernatural event in history, is the one living inside of us. And I want you to know, we've just looked at portions of the book of Luke. This isn't even every supernatural event in the book of Luke. And it's certainly not inclusive of everything that happened in the Bible. Because you know what? Jesus turned water into wine. Hey, there's no natural way to do that. Paul and many others were confronted by the resurrected Jesus. That's supernatural. Philip, you remember Philip was preaching to the, to the, the uh, eunuch and he was swept away to the city of Azotus, which was, they figured, approximately 30 kilometers away. He was just swept away by the Spirit of the Lord and appeared 30 kilometers away. That's not natural. That's supernatural. What about the day of Pentecost when God's power came upon them like fire and it sounded like rushing winds and they all began to speak in tongues? That's supernatural. What about in the Old Testament? Joseph received visions and he interpreted dreams through the power of God. Elijah called fire down from heaven. And the sun stood still when the Israelites were fighting the Amorites under, under Joshua. And even the wall of Jericho fell flat to the ground when the Israelites yelled. The supernatural is a reality for the Christian. And we have to be open to it. We have to stop pushing it away and let God move in our lives. So the question is, are we going to suppress the supernatural in disbelief and limit the ability of God to work in our lives? Or will we be a people who embrace it? This morning, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you, and me as well. Let's, let's all be a people who will let God work, rule, and reign in our lives no matter how He chooses to do it. Even if it doesn't fit in with what the world deems natural. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet.